Is mindfulness worth the effort? And what exactly is it? Is it really that important a skill to develop? Now, I'm not going to lie. When I first came across mindfulness, I just didn't get it. So if you're curious as to what mindfulness is and what it could do for you, then this episode is perfect for you. Now that I finally get it, I'm a big fan of the benefits that come from investing in mindfulness. And so is my next guest and my friend, Helen Nicholson, who's the author of the best-selling brilliant book, Mindfulness and How to Stay Sane in an Insane World. And she credits mindfulness for turning her life around after burning out from the hedonic treadmill of a busy life. And welcome, Helen Nicholson. How are you? It's lovely to see you, Paul. Lovely to see you too. We said you'd get you here. And uh, your book, I love the title, Mindfulness, How to Stay Sane in an Insane World. Um, Quite a powerful title. Uh, So let's have a little dive in into mindfulness. I, I really would like this to be an episode where people get a good sense of what mindfulness is and what it's done for you. So I think there are lots of definitions of mindfulness out there. One that particularly resonates with me is when I think true mindfulness is when you bring your brain and your body into the same place at the same time with intention. Because often, you know, we're sitting somewhere, we're at a restaurant or we're in a conversation, but our minds are wandering somewhere else. And, and you know, mind wandering is lovely and daydreaming is great. But I think that often, you know, we can spend a lot of our lives with our minds and our bodies in different places. So I think it's that ability to recognize that and then consciously bring your attention back to what you're doing. Okay. Why is that important? Why is it important to be able to bring your attention back to this present moment to the here and now? So I think that the biggest gift you can give to people increasingly is your attention. Mm. I think attention is more valuable than oil increasingly, because I think, you know, prior to COVID, I think we had YouTube type attention. Um, You know, we, we, we would give someone or a marketing message or a, you know, a clip at least a couple of minutes before we drift off. Whereas now I think we've moved to TikTok style attention where our attention has become, you know, because we bombarded every day with so many messages. Mm. So our attention is precious. And that ability to decide intentionally and consciously where you're going to put your attention, I think is increasingly becoming valuable because our relationships have suffered, I think, with the overwhelm and, you know, the anxiety that's going on in the world. So when you bring more attention to your relationships or your work or your children or any area of your life, then immediately the quality of those relationships improves. No, I, I agree with that. Do you know, someone the other day said on TikTok that one of my clips was too long and it was 90 seconds. They're like, get yeah, to the point. Yeah. Um, and so that was, <laughs> that was, that was, you know, it did make me laugh. It did make me laugh. It's, I wonder at what point, how long uh, will be too long, like 20 seconds, 10 seconds. Yeah. You know, people want mm. this instant fix of, I want the information here and now and, there's an element of being of patience being lost, isn't there? There's an element of, you know, being able to sit with information and begin to explore it and, and begin to reflect and process it. We just want this instant info 
uh, in the here and now. It's like the Amazon, you know, Amazon Prime delivery of, you know, uh, of shopping. It's like, because we could, we're so used to getting things instantly with music, streaming, videos, films, everything. It's, again, it's, it's this expectation to have things sooner rather than later. Yeah. No, and I think when you become more mindful, you, you one of the results of mindfulness is, I think, self-compassion. I think mm. you become more patient with yourself and you become kinder to yourself. And generally, when you do that, then you often become more patient and kinder to other people. Because often we are impatient and unkind, um, you know, in traffic or with other people, because often we, we're doing the same thing to ourselves. No, I, I, I totally get that. I think one of the most powerful things we could ever do is cultivate with patience and compassion uh, a healthier relationship with ourselves. Uh, so getting a sense of what mindfulness is and what it might be able to do. How did you get into mindfulness? How, where did this start? So I had to have a couple of um, burnout experiences and the last one I nearly actually died. So I'm an ex-accountant. So I also think that has influenced the way in which I've approached mindfulness because I see mindfulness not just as meditation. A lot of people see, you know, mindfulness equals meditation. I think it's a lot broader. I think meditation is certainly a technique, but I also think it's about the way you eat. I think it's about the way you manage your time what your cupboards look like, how you, um, you know, what kind of attention you give to people. So where it really hit home for me is I have 26-year-old identical twin daughters. And when they were eight, so they were little, and their molar teeth fell out. And I don't know about in your house and your culture, but in our house and our culture, we have a history of the tooth fairy. Um, coming to visit children when their teeth fall out. And because my children are identical, literally their molar teeth fell out on the same day. And they were very excited about this because they also thought molar teeth were worth more than little teeth in the front. So they thought there was going to be a financial bonanza from the tooth fairy. And I'm embarrassed to admit is that obviously I was the tooth fairy and I forgot. And I didn't just forget the first night. I forgot the second, third and fourth night. And I'll never forget on that fifth morning, I was brushing my teeth. And one of my daughters, Sabrina, came up to me and she put her hand on my arm and she looked up at me with the saddest little face you'd ever seen. And she said to me, mommy, I don't believe in the tooth fairy anymore. And what it was, it was a kind of like a dagger in my heart because what I realized I was missing out on life. I looked at my children and I thought, I'm not sure I've properly participated in the eight years of kind of their childhood. And I was very much living, a, if any of you've watched a black and white movie, I think you were going through the motions. It was Monday, then it was Friday. It was Monday, then it was Friday. And in that particular year, it was suddenly October. And I thought, how did we get to be in October? So I didn't feel that I was living, you know, and I think what mindfulness has the potential to do and what it's done in my life is that it converted me from that black and white movie into living a much more intentional, conscious, HD, technicolor life. Mm. So if you, um, because, you know, you realize that, the quality of our life is actually not about the big things, the holidays or promotions or big travel trips and, you know, new houses or whatever it is, they play a role, but largely the quality of our life is about the daily things that happen to you. And they're often about the small things. And so when you become more mindful, you notice things much more. Yeah. I, and and I, that's what I did. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I, I think so many people will be resonating with you right now. 
in regards to, you know, Sabrina looking up at you and just saying that she doesn't believe in a tooth fairy anymore because of what you were missing out on. And exactly. Yeah. Anyone listening to this, who's thinking, Oh, that's me. You know, I'm missing out on my family here because they're caught up in, I call it groundhog day. You know, it's that I, you know, when you said Monday to Friday, that resonated with me because I remember when I, in my actual last, when I was last employed, which is a long time ago, I remember catching a train uh, to London uh, to commute. And on the way there, I was thinking, it's a Monday. And I was thinking, oh, I wish it was Friday. Um, and that kind of shocked me because already I was wishing my life away. And mm. it kind of had this sort of realization that I was trying to cram in my life into just a couple of hours on an evening and the weekend. My day was taken up with a job that was, okay, good money, but was it was not feeding my soul. It was not nourishing me. And in a way, I kind of just went into autopilot to do it. I wasn't mindful at all. And mm -hmm. it was that wake-up call that led me to where I am now. So I'm kind of grateful for that. But what advice would you give to someone who's thinking, this is me. I'm not really living my life. It's black and white. And I want some technicolor. I want it to be full HD. What would you suggest? So what's what's great about uh, you know mindfulness techniques is that they're relatively simple and they they mm -hmm. actually can be very practical and you can literally start doing them straight after you've listened to this podcast. So one of the biggest ones that has had the biggest impact on me is gratitude. So I bookend my day um, and with two of the techniques that I use. So one of the ones is that. Um, I, I used to use my phone as an alarm clock. And when I woke up in the morning, it's, and this happened during COVID, I think we were also addicted to news, is I would look at my phone as I woke up and kind of see what had happened, you know, yeah. et cetera. And what I decided, that anxiety that kind of coursed through my body wasn't very healthy. So what I do now, and I've been doing this for kind of the last two years, is I wake up, I go downstairs, I have a cup of tea, I look at the garden, and then I meditate for 15 minutes. And, and that's clearly a, a, a big mindfulness technique. And then mm -hmm. I switch on my phone. So that 45-minute um, bandwidth that I give myself enables me to cope with whatever is thrown at me during the day. And then what I do, the other bookend is gratitude. So I have a gratitude journal next to my bed and I fill it out, I handwrite it. And there's a lot of research that handwriting is a lot more powerful than you know if you typed it. Yeah. And I have to do a page every day. And it's just a rule that I'm not allowed to go to bed until I've done that. And, you know, there's some things that I write every day. And then there's some things that are day specific. Okay. But there's not a day that goes by when I don't finish that exercise and think I am a very blessed, lucky woman indeed. Just a quick break to say I am so excited to announce a brand new podcast channel to help you transform your life in ways you might not yet be able to imagine. 2023, we are kicking your ass. Now, this is a channel of experimental content I know you are going to love. Now, Mindset Change Another Level has exclusive deeper subconscious training meditations to help you upgrade your long overdue programs that are holding you back in life. You also get searchable meditations without ads, intros and outros, so you can find your favorites super easily. You get access to masterminds to help take your mindset change to another level, and you get to engage with me in a whole new way. 
And as a thank you for supporting the new channel, you get discounts from my group workshops too. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes and come and join. Oh, and feel free to come and join my WhatsApp community too. I can't wait to welcome you. So I think the danger with gratitude lists is, um, and this is where people aren't mindful with them, is where they just rush it out and do it almost like as a checklist. You know, I've done my, you know, they, they write it down and they just do this, you know, I've done it now, I can tick it off and I've done my gratitude list. What would you advise someone who's thinking, okay, yeah, I want to do a gratitude list. Do I have to do a page? You know, what, how much do I write? What do I write? Um, do I go into detail or can I just be, you know, um, you know, just say whatever comes to mind? What do you think would be helpful? So the first three that I always write down is I, I list my family's health and myself and my daughters and my whole family. And I say, I'm grateful for their health. Then I say, I'm grateful for the amazing young woman my children are turning out to be. And I'm grateful for the love of Michael. He's my, he's my second husband. So I thought I need to appreciate him because we, um, you know, with second marriages, I think you, you have a deeper level of mindfulness and appreciation for them. Okay. So those are the way I always start, start out. But my, my advice to listeners is to engage your senses. So think of the things that you sensorily experience during the day. So cappuccinos, for example, always feature for me because I love cappuccinos. <laughs> and they're not a big thing, but I, and I like macadamia cappuccinos. So they've got a very specific taste. And then I always write the delicious taste of the cappuccino. I, there's a lot about the weather. You know, I live in Johannesburg, which has an amazing climate. And uh, I lived in the Middle East for um, five years. And I really only noticed our weather when I came back because, you know, it, it really is a very lovely climate. So, you know, those are the kind of things. So, so when you engage your senses, I think gratitude becomes a lot more interesting. Oh, I, think that's, I think that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And so when you, going back to the... Uh, the time when you began to realize you were living in a sort of almost like black and white world, what was the, what other impacts did that have on you? What else was going on? So, as I say, it took me a while to learn my lessons. Um, I, you know, I had the, um, the tooth fairy incident. And very shortly after that, I went to a course called the Corporate Athlete in Florida in the States, where they spoke a lot around how to manage your energy mindfully. And the premise of it is stress is not the bad guy. The absence of recovery is the problem. And that for me was a complete epiphany because I'd always associated recovery with laziness. So I was that girl who constantly multitasked. I had my diary jam-packed every kind of day and every week and every month. And, and I saw that as a badge of honor. And so the epiphany for me there was that actually rest is the secret source of high performance. And, you know, whenever I listen to clients or delegates and they tell me about their new goals that they want to achieve, for example, in 2023, I mm. always say to them, well, what is your recovery strategy? Because there needs to be an amplified recovery strategy if you're going to increase your performance. And, um, you know, athletes and, and the reason why this piece of research was done in the sports arena was that athletes understand recovery, I think, better than we do in the working world because athletes will always incorporate recovery into their schedule. And um, there's a wonderful case study of Ivan Lendl, who um, some of you may remember, he won the World Tennis Championship um, five years in a row. 
and Harvard listened um, or they watched hours and hours of his footage because they couldn't believe that someone had the sustained level of high performance mm. for, you know, five years. And when they watched his footage, they noticed that he took a five to 10 second um, break between each point that was longer than his opponent on the other side of the net. And when they told him, they said, you know that you take five to 10 seconds longer than your opponent in between each point. And so he had a longer recovery period. So his his um, game kind of had high highs and then low lows. And that actually was a secret source. So, um, and he actually did it unconsciously. He didn't even know that he was doing it. And when he was finally beaten, he was beaten by um, a Chinese American player called Michael Chang. And Michael Chang extended his recovery time in order to beat Lendl. And there's such a valuable lesson for us there mm. because, you know, how do you have daily recovery? Do you have weekly, monthly, and yearly? And that was a huge epiphany for me was okay. starting to incorporate those very deliberate recovery rituals. And what do you do in the, what, you know, what did they do in their recovery rituals? Did, were they doing a breathing technique? Were they just stopping? Um, and what do you do? So I think recovery, you know, what I've realized looks very different to different people. So I, I've used words as a metaphor. Um, so I always think of if you imagine your day is a sentence, what is your full stop? So I have three kind of full stops because of what I've realized, people don't even have commas in their days. They just go straight through. Yeah. And, and if you think of music or you think of um, books, none of them would be beautiful if they didn't have punctuation. So we need to have punctuation in the way in which we manage our lives and our day. And that punctuation is your recovery. So my three that happen is one is my husband and I go for a walk at about five, half past five. I then bath. So I change clothes and yeah. then I sit down and I have a whiskey on the couch. And those three are my full stops. And when I do those things, I'm then done for the day. I, um, I, it's like I, I see myself as a sprinter. So I've sprinted. And then I'm done. I won't. I've taken email off my phone. And in our business, which has had to kind of morph and change quite really dramatically over COVID, no one sends emails at night. And, um, you know, we are very deliberate. Everyone has a, has a full stop. I'll go into social media maybe later, but I don't do emails or I don't do work because I also know I make mistakes then. And then I've included um, a weekly Sabbath. So on, the, on Saturday, I, I put my phone somewhere else. I go for a run with my friends, I have coffee, and then literally I lie on the couch for, and, and I don't run around shopping centers, I don't do errands, I, I mm. keep that, you know, and I try and simplify that. And then I have a monthly recovery ritual of going to a spa. So I have a life, uh, the philosophy when the going gets tough, the tough go to spas as an SPAS. So, yeah. and, I, and I book them in advance. So I'll have a facial or a, a massage once a month because often the only way we know a month is transitioning from one month to another is we have debit orders um, going off our account, which is not a great way to celebrate, um, you know, recovery. So, so I would really encourage everyone who's listening to this is, you know, it's, a, it's September. It's a good time to plan, you know, for 2024. Mm -hmm. Get your calendars out and already start thinking about mini breaks. And when I was researching my book, it came out very clearly that the best um, – duration for a break is three days so those are your kind of yearly breaks so it, we can't take one holiday anymore we've actually got to take mini breaks during the year i think that's wonderful advice really powerful because yeah it's amazing how many people feel guilty 
for recovery. Oh, by the way, did you know what the tennis players did? Did you know what they did for a break? Did it ever come out? You know, that 10 seconds? Um, did they just breathe so it, up or? So it was very different according to, but Lendl specifically, if you watch some of his footage, which I have, is he would play with his racket strings. He'd bang uh, his racket against his foot. Okay. So he would slow the game down um, yeah. kind of quite dramatically and just take some time to almost regroup and and then carry on. Yeah, we, we're learning the same thing. I'm, I've got a High Rocks uh, athletics competition coming up in Dublin uh, next month, funny enough. And we've already started training for it. And taking those little mini breaks during the sets of exercise really are a game changer when it comes to uh, performing, uh, you know, at our best. But obviously some people really do try to push through. The guilt is something that I hear a lot is uh, the guilt can override and pressurize and trick someone into continuing without recovery. It's almost like they don't, they feel they don't need it. They get cognitive dissonance from the fact that they don't, you know, they don't have to do this. Uh, there's not going to be really much of a, um, you know, comeback. Um, what would you, what would you advise to someone who is listening to this and doesn't know what to do with the guilt? That comes in from yeah. uh, from you know from, you know because if they go to rest, you ever heard of stress laxing? No, I've no, not heard of that. What is that? Yeah, it's a term for people who get stressed when they relax. So mm. that, that guilt mm. that is almost like their flight or fight response can begin to kick off because mm. they are there. There's a part of them that feels they're in danger if they try to relax. So re- so recovery can be extra yeah. hard. What advice would you give to someone who's struggling to see the value in recovery? Yeah. So I alluded to it at the beginning when I said the last, um, my last burnout episode was kind of death um, defying. Mm. And I had to, I, I, I went away on a break and I had been ill and I was on my third antibiotic. I couldn't get better. And what I did is I, I, took two medications together because I was frustrated with my body and I wanted to get better and I wanted to go and hike in the mountains. So I took these two medications together. They contraindicated each other and I ended up in anaphylactic shock naked on the bathroom. And that's where my family found me. And you've got an hour to get help when you get anaphylactic shock. So my realization after that episode was, you know, why do I put everything else first Mm. Um, my work, my children, my family, everyone else's needs before my, um, my, my clear rest need. And I had to really confront my recovery story. And I think that's the antidote to deal with guilt. I think we get guilty when we're not clear. And I would really encourage everyone to think back to your recovery story because it often comes from our childhood. It comes from the messages you got from your parents. For example, if you were lying and, you know, doing nothing and then they would say, come, come, you know, there are no lazy children in this house and children must, you know, be busy. And and often those are the voices that cause people to kind of be paralyzed with guilt. Mm. And I'm a great believer is feel that, acknowledge it almost like an unwelcome visitor that's arrived at your house and, and move through it because you've got to, I think you've got to have the um, realization that rest is a high performance technique and mm-hmm. not laziness. And unfortunately, if you don't have that, then you're going to end up like me where you, your health is uh, suffers in the end. And, um, you know, I think 
mindfulness is very much around listening to your body. And that was when I had my big epiphany that if I didn't listen to my body, which was clearly sending out a very powerful message, then I was actually the worst version of myself. I wasn't a good businesswoman. I wasn't a good mother. I wasn't a good wife. I wasn't. Uh, so it's actually the best version of me that everyone gets if I prioritize rest and recovery. Wow. And I think, you know, I love what you just said in regards to um, that you had this, you know, you had this epiphany and it's got you to where you are today. Um, but when you were, you know, you had an athletic shock, you were at that point where you could have died. Um, what was, what do you think was the next big step that you took to help yourself heal? Is that, was it mindfulness? Cause I think mindfulness helped you heal your burnout or was there something else which was linked to that? What was it that helped you make that transition, uh, from that, you know, burnout state to helping yourself? Yeah, I think I realized that things couldn't carry on like this. In other words, I realized that this was unsustainable uh, to, to carry on like this. And I, I also am very connected to my purpose. I, I know why I've been put onto this earth. Uh, I've got a fire in my belly about spreading um, and teaching. I'm a born teacher. I'm the daughter of a, of a, a school teacher. And when I see the lights go on in people's eyes, then I know that this is what I was put on this planet to do. So I realized that if I was going to fulfill my purpose, so I think my purpose was my guiding kind of North star that helped me realize that I've got stuff to do and my brain and my mind and my spirit might be strong, but my body wasn't kind of uh, coming along the way it should. And in order, if I wanted to accomplish what I did, and I, and I am very driven, then I had to take care of this vessel better. I love that. I love that. Something you mentioned earlier about stress, because obviously it, it sounds like stress nearly killed you. And yet you were saying that stress isn't the bad guy. So which is it? You know, should we really demonize stress? Um, or is it really helpful in some way? So I think, you know, stress forces us into a high performance state. It's mm -hmm. often where we do our best work. If you think you've got an exam or you've got a, you know, big pitch or a very important meeting, that adrenaline and cortisol that goes through your system is there to serve you because it's designed to help you perform at your peak. Yeah. What I realized through this work is that we're not designed, though, to be in that fight or flight mode all the time. So our days should actually oscillate between stress and recovery. And the problem is most people don't. They, they get, start meetings at nine o'clock in the morning. They finish at six. And, you know, it's literally kind of this flat line of adrenaline and cortisol where ideally you want to, you know, and a very tangible way to make this happen in your, in your day is to start setting 25 and 35 minute meetings. Never have 30 and 60 minute meetings so that you've got a 15 to 20 minute, you know, gap between your meetings where you can just go outside and breathe and, um, you know, always eat in a place that's pretty. Never eat you know, next to your screen. So, you know, you can incorporate small recovery rituals um, in your day, which can actually, you know, get that oscillatory effect going. I love that. Is there, I was, I was listening to Stephen Kotler talk about proactive recovery and uh, the difference between, like you're saying, well, sitting in front of the TV uh, isn't proper recovery, but say doing some breath work, like you do going for a walk, uh, is a way that 
uh, really has an impact on our nervous systems. You know, do you do you know any other ways of doing proactive recovery that listeners could begin to do themselves? Because it is quite tempting just to try and switch off in front of the TV, but it's quite highly stimulating. Uh, I don't think it actually helps the brain recover at all. So what would you advise? No. Yeah, I mean, if, if you used yourself as an experiment and you spent an entire weekend watching Netflix, by the time Sunday um, evening came along, you wouldn't feel rejuvenated. Um, you'd actually feel quite exhausted because in other words, it's been the, the recovery has been too linear. It's been one-way stimulation. You know, it's that difference between the active and passive recovery. So generally, recovery for it to work needs you, you to be more engaged, and that's why TV doesn't really count. So ideally, something in nature where you get moving. Exercise is a very powerful um, recovery ritual because it, it, it has multiple benefits. You know, mm -hmm. exercise is what they call a keystone habit. It's, it's more important than other habits, you know, because all habits are not equal. Exercise is good for your body, but it's also good for your brain. And if you're doing it with a friend or a partner or whatever, then you're getting a social aspect. So there's a whole a multiple. And, and I mean, we're not talking, you know, running a marathon. We're talking, you know, 30 minutes of exercise three times a week. So I think that that, that getting moving um, and uh, mm -hmm. getting involved is, is really the best kind of recovery. And going for a walk every day is, is just a great recovery ritual. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the exercise thing. And, and, and even proactive recovery, yoga, um, you know, doing Pilates, doing, you know, stretching, uh, mm. anything that's got a mm. slight little bit of difficulty to it, but also is something that help, also calms the nervous system, breath work. Uh, can also be really wonderful. Um, so developing rituals is very, very important by the signs of things. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people listening to this are thinking, yeah, but I got kids and uh, I'm just too busy. And where would I put these rituals? They all sound really wonderful. Uh, what would you advise to someone who would like to start some rituals, would like to start some healthy habits, but find it too difficult to keep disciplined and to put them into place? So, I mean, I do think that James Clear's Atomic Habits is one of the best, yeah. you know, pieces of research around um, habits. And for me, there have been two things, um, you know, he speaks a lot about controlling your environment. And, and I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, we are trying to eat more healthily. I, I've had a very busy period and I didn't feel that I've been as mindful about our eating as what I'd like. So what um, someone said in terms of controlling my environment, my ritual to get us on track was I swapped our fridge around. So normally your vegetables in your fridge go in the bottom, you know, in those trays. So yeah. I took all the little bottles that are normally at the bottom top of our fridge and I put them in the bottom and I put labels on the top so I can actually see what they are. And all the vegetables went to the top. And oh, wow. that small change, it's not a big change, but what it did, it resulted in us literally eating treble the amount of vegetables. Because every time we opened the fridge, we saw what the, you know, instead of being stuck at the bottom of the fridge. So, you know, I started running by using a ritual of putting my running shoes at the bottom of my bed. So mm. when I went to that corporate athlete program, that was one of the pieces of advice they said. Is they said, if you're not exercising, start putting your running shoes at the bottom of your, of your bed. And initially I ignored them, but I'd still mm -hmm. did it every night. Then I got my feet into them. Then I started to walk and I started to walk and run. And I ran the New York marathon in 2011. I mean, oh, wow. I've never run a marathon before or since, but I thought if I was going to kill myself, at least let me do it in style mm -hmm. in New York. 
Um, but still to this day, I now am walking because I've got a knee injury, but um, I still put out my whole outfit you know, at the bottom of my bed before I go to bed, because it's just, it's that trigger, you know, and I think a ritual is, is you've got to make it easy. So, so I, I'm taking away a lot of my decisions. I've just put my outfit out. I know that I've got to wake up and, you know, and then I've got to get into those clothes and you just do it. So I think the more you can automate rituals and eventually it becomes the way you do things. And, and that's how I, you know, my phone ritual in the morning, mm. the exercise and the gratitude. That's just, you know, um, I've automated a lot of it. Yeah, like I do the same. Like visual cues are very powerful. You know, it's the first thing I see in the morning are, are my gym trainers. But I also get a reminder that the class I'm booked into is coming up. So, um, and I time it so that as soon as I wake up, there's time to do a quick mini meditation like 10 minutes just to get some breath work in and create some intentions. And then it's go, go, go till I get to the gym. So there's no, there's no time to, to go looking at phones. There's no time to go messing around. It's I've orchestrated it. So it literally is we get up, we go. And that's our, uh, mm. that's our morning ritual. Mm. I, do, I do a half an hour meditation when I come back because I said, it's having a partner that is on board with this. It's like, we're doing this now, aren't we? So instead of my mind could easily go, oh, you have got all these other things to do. If you've got someone colluding with you, then it's mm. much easier as well to, to get, you know, these habits on board and to make them a natural habit, but also to, to make them a valuable habit. You know, I think that's obviously sometimes people don't really know the true value of what they're going to get. They want that instant fix, what we were talking about earlier, but the fix isn't about what you're going to get there and then. It's about what you're going to get later on in your future. It's investing in your future self. Yeah, I mean, you know, someone told me once about running is that often you don't feel like running, especially if it's kind of half past five in the morning and it's winter and it's cold and it's very miserable outside, but you will always feel better afterwards. So I think it's it's realizing that. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So last night, um, my husband and I started going to yoga on a Wednesday night. And as we were on our way there last Lovely. night, he was saying, I don't want to go. It's such a pain, this midweek thing, you know, and he just, and I knew that he would love it when he went. Um, and I just said, it's like running, like you, you may not like it initially, but, and by the end of it, because there's a beautiful teacher and it was a stunning, stunning class at the mm. end of it, like I could just see he had such a smile on his face. So I think it's also to realize that sometimes just cause we don't feel like doing something it is not good enough mm. not to do it. You've got to push through that. Yeah. I think emotional reasoning is a dangerous game, isn't it? I don't feel like doing it. So therefore I don't have to do it or don't want to do it or shouldn't do it. And I think just that recognition that our feelings are often, you know, fleeting, mm. but we can't rely on the waiting to feel motivated. We can't rely on a feeling of, I don't want to as being the truth. Yes, exactly. Yes. I think it's, yeah, I think that's really powerful. Um, so if people wanted to find out more about you, Helen, where could they get in contact with you uh, to explore mindfulness, to explore anything else that you do? Because I know they've got some other exciting things coming up, like a menopause safari. There's all sorts of things going on in your world. Uh, where could they find out more about you? So I'm on Instagram at Network with Helen. Um, I run a business called The Networking Company. So you can find us um, kind of online. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So I share a lot of um, our work uh, and you can find me at Helen Nicholson. So um, my, my book is on Amazon 
And um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Brilliant. I will put all your details in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you here. Um, again, please do check out the book, Mindfulness, How to Stay Sane in a Sane World. Lots of practical tips, even poetry, a lot going on. And I think there's a lot there to be gained if anyone wants to explore mindfulness. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for listening to this wonderful episode of me and Helen. If you need any help with mindfulness and how to get practicing, please use my meditations. They are full of mindfulness techniques. You can also check out Helen's book. The link is in the show notes. And please do reach out for any type of mindset coaching if you need it. I look forward to connecting with you in the very next episode. Have an incredible day. Mm-hmm.